I'm Scott Weatherly. Welcome to 20th Century Geek. Every week there are tons of new comics on the stands, and that's great. I love picking up my books on a weekly basis and getting the next chapter of the saga. Then once completed, these stories of modern myth abound in some excellently presented collected editions. Wonderful! So we get new stories all the time, and more recently, one headline-grabbing event after another, all taking up space on our shelves. The point is that we move forward week on week. Some things get overshadowed, or even forgotten. Of course, there are books that will always be at the top, and whether you have been reading comics for 30 years, 5 years or 5 minutes, you will have at least heard of them. Everyone knows Watchmen, The Dark Knight Returns, Mouse, or even the Infinity Gauntlet. And rightfully so, these are great books that stand the test of time and should be revisited by anyone even vaguely interested in comics. However, in the glut of new books, or the top ten lists of comics to read before you die, I want to highlight two comics that I think are woefully underrated and deserve some attention from modern readers. I should make it clear that these choices are my own, are not based on anything other than the fact that I think they are brilliant, but don't seem to be talked about much, or even at all. The first comic I want to talk about always surprises me when I find that comic fans have not heard of it. I first came across it in 1993 when Dark Horse Comics released a monthly serialised adaptation of the film Jurassic Park. It was a backup series, I assume because it also contained dinosaurs. It's titled Cadillacs and Dinosaurs which is a pretty cool name, but since then I've learned its proper name, Xenozoic Tales. Created in 1987 by Mark Schultz, the series is a pulp mashup of Mad Max and the Lost World. The art is stunning and the writing is strong. This is a true passion project for Schultz and it shows on every single page. Let me set the scene. The human race's mistreatment of the planet results in a cataclysmic environmental event, driving humans underground for 400 years. Finally, we emerge hoping to reclaim the planet, only to find that the planet is no longer as we left it, and we are no longer the dominant species. The world has reverted to a more prehistoric state and is populated by dinosaurs and strange lizard humanoids. Over time, the human race starts to find its place in the new world order and is able to survive. It is at this point we join the story and start to learn about the people and the new social structure. The primary characters are Jack Tenrek, a guy who has learned how to fix and maintain the machines of the old age. He is a rough and surly guy who understands how the balance of nature has to be maintained. He is trusted and respected by the community around him which gives him some sway in the way things are done. We also have Hannah Dundee, a scientist from another community who enters the story as an ambassador to create links between the new communities. She is intelligent, brave and adventurous, and more than a match for Jack. The relationship dynamic between these two forms the core of the series as they move from one adventure to another. But this series is so much more than just these two. There is a long list of supporting characters that are pretty well-rounded and they all exist in a world that is easy to believe in. The world building in this series is so good and while issues that have been published only cover a small area of the world, 
you get the feeling there is so much more to explore. The series had 15 minutes of fame in the early 90s, with a side-scrolling fighting game released by Capcom in 1993 and a 13-episode animated series in 1994. Episodes can easily be found with a little digging on YouTube, and I would encourage you to do so. The animation is solid and the stories are fun. It's on par with, if not better than, any of the early 90s Saturday morning cartoons. I was lucky enough to catch up with Darren and Ruth from the excellent podcast Xenozoic Xenophiles recently to talk about their love of the series and why you should give it a read. Yeah, well um, this is great. I, we appreciate the invitation very much, so this will be fun. No, I'm really looking forward to it. So let's get stuck in then, really. So when did you guys come across this comic? Like, when did you, when did you come across the book? Wow, all the way back in 1987. Wow. Yeah, so we discovered it when it was new. We uh, can remember we picked up issue three off the shelf new. Wow, so you were there at the, at the, sort of the ground floor getting in there early. Yeah, it was, it was such a big seller for a small black and white, you know, mm. independent comic that uh, issues one and two were impossible to find just a few months after they had come out. I can remember we hunted and hunted forever for issues one and two before we could find them. Right, we kept wanting to know, how did this begin? I want to find this. Mm. <laughs> They're still not particularly easy. Even on eBay, they, they go for quite a bit, like an original copy Absolutely. in good condition. Yeah, the original issues are, are tough to find. They're generally expensive when you can't find them. We were amazed somebody... Uh, uh, sent us a message just recently. They actually found one in like a dollar box or something like that. Issue wow. six or issue nine. That's really rare. It was probably mislabeled. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Someone they else's, someone else's misfortune is your luck. That's it. Yes. <laughs> That's right. I do love that Mark Schultz has gotten together with Flesk Publications, and Flesk has been keeping their Xenozoic collection in print now it's been in print since 2010 so it's yeah. a wonderful way to pick them up but it's not the same as having you know the original floppies with the, you know all the backup stories and everything but it's a fantastic book that i would always highly recommend yeah and that's the thing i mean they say the collected editions are good because you know it's a concise way of getting it but yeah you can't beat the original um floppies and going through and and uh, that sort of thing so okay so when you when you came across it and you obviously got it at what makes it stand out for you then as a you know compared to everything else what makes it why why do you go back to it so often why what's the, where's the passion come from oh it's so imaginative and smart so it's, mm. it's thought-provoking and it's adventurous and just so creative yeah bruce right it has all the elements of a traditional action-adventure story. Hey, it's got dinosaurs in there, so it grabs you on the fun level. But the stories themselves are really intelligent and intricate, and small things have large impacts. Mm. So those things keep you wanting to read. But Mark Schultz's art, you know, that just grabs you and draws you in. There's no way not to pick up something drawn by Mark Schultz and think, oh, this is amazing. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, one of the things I noticed recently, it's um, um, Bernie uh, Wigston, uh, the artist who died re- recently, who did that like, Swamp Thing, and yes, his art. And then uh, there's a couple of it's that sort. Of, there's an era of sort of like late seventies, uh, early eighties, and Mark Schultz's art appears to be in that sort of like ethos that when it's in black and white, their pencil 
stylings are so distinctive and so sort of uh, detailed, but without being complex. Um, yes. And that that's a sign of real talent. Totally. Know, able to have, yeah, I, I think, you know, I'll, I'll go back to it and I say you can just... You mentioned it on one of your podcasts in the first issues. There's, there's, um, you could just sit and just look, and you forget to sort of turn the page. <laughs> You've read it, but you're just looking at the pictures again and again because they're so well done. You can pick up so many details from them. Um, it's so rich. Yeah, rich is the right word. You're absolutely right. You can just stare at his art, and you know some of those issues were colored later on by Marvel, but mm. you really, uh, you know, Mark Schultz stuff has to be seen in black and white because he just excels at it. And we've talked to him and he's such a fan of black and white film. And that's where a lot of his interest comes from. And you can really see how nuanced and layered and how he uses gray tones. And you can just see that you want to see his stuff in black and white. And how important the lighting is. Yes. Exactly. I, I, that's what I was about to say. The lighting and the use of shadow in it is so important that um, I, I mean, I came across it in color when I first came across it. Actually, it was used as um, Dark Horse did the Jurassic Park movie adaptation in comic form, right. and, the, and the backup for that was um, out of order. It's weird enough, but they did them out of order. But it was uh, like the short story version of like Xenozoic Tales. And it was all yeah. been it all been coloured, and I thought, oh, this is interesting. This is interesting. It's fine. It looks good, but when you see it in black and white, as it was intended, it is a different experience. Yes, it definitely is. Yeah, he um, he just recently published a book called Storms at Sea. It came out just last year or year before, mm. and a new edition just came out right before the holidays. But it's a novella. But the way it's laid out is every time you open each two page spread. One side of the one page is a piece of art, and the next page is text. So it's like reading a novella, an illustrated novel, and every other page is a, a beautiful illustration. And his illustrations are so rich there. I've told him that I want them all to be hanging up in an art gallery so I can just stare at them <laughs> because you do get sucked into them, just like you were saying. And that's it. I mean, because with uh, with Mark Schultz, he must because this is an independent comic, so he must own all the original. Um, the artwork, all the original pages and that sort of thing. So I'm assuming he's still got those. Um, he does. He's mentioned that to us that that's his, uh, he's maybe saving that for his retirement. <laughs> I, I'm sure he is. And I'm, I'm sure they will make him a lot of money because some of these pages, there's a couple of splash pages and larger pages that I would love to have the original art. Like you say, just hanging on the wall, it would be amazing to just sit and, and look at that larger original piece. Um yeah, yeah, fantastic. Um, so, you, so that's what stands out for you from an art point of view. I mean, what about the merchandising then? So the other side of it then, you know, there's the cartoon and there's the computer game and that sort of thing. They, there are twists on it, but what are your thoughts on those? You know, it, it's really exciting. I mean, there's nothing as good as the original, I think, with Xenozoic Tales, but in all honesty, the animated series, was, well, Paul, it's not as good as the comic, it's one of the best animated series to come out of the 90s easily. It's mm. very well done. It's it's a smart, intelligent Saturday morning cartoon show. That's probably why it only ran 13 episodes is because it didn't fit with the rest of Saturday morning TV. It was a bit <laughs> yeah. too thought-provoking and intelligent. <laughs> but it, it's a delightful show. And, of course, uh, Topps Comics did 
a series of comics that tied in with the TV show followed its continuity, and I think there are nine issues of that, like three three issue miniseries, mm. and they're really quite good. And like Mark Schultz said uh, himself, you know, it's it's hard seeing other people play with your characters and do things with your characters that you wouldn't do, but those issues were written by Roy Thomas, and he said, you know, how amazing can it be to have Roy Thomas yeah, yeah, yeah. writing your creation? So they're really good too, and there are just so many things. That, we have, you know, we were fans way back in the day, so we actually have the line of action figures and even like the Cadillac toy that came out. So we bought all of those when they were new. Those are hard to find now too. Wow! But yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's funny, you know how how much merchandise there was. You know, the show sort of exploded, or the comic and title property exploded there for mm. a few years. And Mark Schultz himself mentioned because he already, as he says, is very slow, but managing the merchandise took up so much of his time that it reduced his production even more and that's mm. the reason why near the end of the series you just get usually one issue a year because that's all they could get done he was managing the merchandising yeah that was taking all of his time yeah i mean it's that thing is it's sort of uh you know giving with one hand and taking away with the other sort of you've got you can't do everything it's it's a shame but i mean that this is such a it's one of those comics that you know that with the growth of like image and you get uh, creator owned um, comics and that sort of thing, it's, you get comics in their purest form, like as their curator intended. So, I think for the great uh, black and white ones like Walking Dead, um, even Invincible, sort of those sort of Robert Kirkman ones where he stuck with it, and um, even like Todd McFarlane with Spawn. I mean, you know, we're not talking quality, but. This is the same with Mark Schultz. This is his vision. It, it, it's, it's, it, it's it in its purest form. Um, yes. Do you think that beyond that it would ever it could ever be picked up and done by anybody else, or do you think this is a sort of a this will be encapsulated with Mark Schultz? No, I think it needs to be his own. Like it's it's the essence of the story is tied so much to I think the creator and his vision. And I, I agree for the most part. I mean, certainly, if it continued and did anything else without him, again, it would not be Mark Schultz's Xenozoic Tales, and it wouldn't be as good. But yeah. I think that it's such a, a well-imagined world that he's created. He's created such an amazing world that I think if he handed it over to someone else or licensed it in some other way again, you know, any any competent person should be able to do something with the world because mm. it's just so rich. And I would love to see, you know, anything just like the animated series. I wish they had done more than 13. Those, those are really good. It's not Mark Schultz, but they're still really good. I don't think it'll happen, but Hey, I would watch a movie <laughs> based on it or a TV show. That's for oh, sure. I well, want a live action movie. That would be incredible. Oh, that's it. Well, that was obviously, you know, when I sort of first contacted you guys, it was about that. I mean, the thought of this not be in this day and age of blockbusters, and like you said, it, they're even becoming more thought provoking, and you know, with things like Arrival and Passengers, and they can do clever sci fi. But you've got Mad Max, you've got Jurassic World, all the Marvel films. Like, this is ripe for the picking. This is. Uh, you're absolutely right, Scott. This should be a movie, and I'm like you, I don't know why it isn't yet, because. It would be a better movie than most of the other summer blockbusters that come out. Uh, again, I because I have confidence in Mark Schultz that he would only license it to someone that he was confident would do something with it. Mm -hmm. And 
I just, I really am, am just, you know, in complete agreement with you. That really needs to happen. And unlike the Saturday morning cartoon, where maybe it didn't quite fit because it was a bit too smart for most Saturday morning cartoons, you know, it's what not not what most kids wanted, but uh, in in a cartoon. But it's perfect for a live action film. It would be much more rich and I think thought provoking and a much nicer world than Jurassic Park because the Jurassic Park movies, Jurassic World, they're good fun movies, Mm. but really they're fairly limited in what they can do. You know, they're struggling to try to create more stories because they're sort of boxed in with how this thing is set up with this island originally. Whereas in Xenozoic Tales, hey, the whole world's covered in dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. You can go lots of places and do lots of stories. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. I totally agree. And this is the thing you said about the richness of the world. Um, you know, recently I've gone back and I read the Tops comics and I read um, the full sort of, you know, Mark Schultz's Xenozoic up to now. The whole thing feels like a snapshot, you know, obviously because of, like I say, it's limited time and the limited run. This, it's, it's, it's almost like Tolkien-esque. There's so much more to that world that hasn't yes. been explored that you could lift it up and you could go to the, the other side of the you know the, the Americas or you could go to Europe or you could go to Australia. or There's so much more to this world that, that could be explored. You know, um, if the world of, like, H.P. Lovecraft can be expanded or Tolkien or the role-playing games, video games, movies, this is just... The merchandise on this is endless, really. You are. I love your enthusiasm there, Scott. (laughs) Very good point. Like, it is such a a wealth of unexplored territory. Well, and it's even like with Storms at Sea. The Storms at Sea novella sort of tells the beginning of this, of the 500-year gap that we have Mm. before the Xenozoic Tales story starts. You sort of get the beginning of what was happening. And... There's so much potential in that 100-page book that you just you read a little section and you think, oh my gosh, that could be a novel in and of itself. There's so much there. Again, a, a wonderfully rich world he's created, and you're exactly right. We're big fans of Tolkien's work, and you're right, this world is as rich as Middle Earth, or at least has the potential to be as rich as Middle Earth. I think so. I think there's so many, and you know, the, now they like the... Uh... The shared universe is the sort of um, is the is the world, you know. They, they, you know your Marvel shared universes and all these other things they're trying to do. Why you couldn't have a Xenozoic shared universe that's you know does all its bits and pieces? Yeah, it's it'd be, it'd well, be brilliant. It would be, and and maybe with Mark Schultz now returning to the series, doing this new graphic novel that will be out next year. Maybe it'll start attracting some new attention again because there'll actually be new material. Right mm. now, I think it's you know it's been twenty years since there was any new material. People like you and us and your friends at the comic book shop, everyone who read it remembers it and has a lot of respect for it. But it hasn't been new in a long time. But now it's suddenly going to be new again. Maybe yes. there'll be some renewed interest. I hope so. That would be fabulous. It would. I mean, this is sort of the point of why I picked these. You know, the, the, the theme up for this month. Is very much because of that that reason. I mean, there's so many books that I think there's books that rightfully stand up and people read them again and again. You know, like Watchmen or um, The Dark Knight and all those sorts of things. Uh-huh. And they they're great, but then they sort of you know in them becoming such titans. There's there's smaller, and in some cases I'd say better books that that get pushed aside. Um, and you you know, and I think because this was was it Kitchen Sink Press who. 
That's right. Put these out originally. Yes, Dennis Kitchen was the publisher's name, so that's where that name came from. Right. You're, yeah, you're right again, uh, Scott. I mean, you know, there's just the potential that's there, and uh, I just really am excited about. And I love the theme that you put together for this because I like what you were just saying. There are many great books that are well-respected and deserve it, but there are a lot of other things that are sort of mediocre that get lots of attention. And then you have some really wonderful things that get forgotten along the wayside. And that that is a shame when you've got a property that you know is fabulous and you don't understand why it's not more popular. Mm. But it, but this one certainly deserves to be. Yeah. And I think if, it, you know, if, if Image Comics, as it sort of stands now, would have been around you know, those 25 years ago, it would have easily... Um, you know, this thing, this book would have got an absolute massive push, and it would have been probably a different story. But going back to the film, then, just an idea. Then let's cast this. Just, just we talked about this. If you were going to see this, who would you want to see in the two leads? Oh, I'm just curious. I, I, <laughs> you know that that question. It's because I think of Mark Schultz and him drawing in black and white the thing that excites me so much you know i i mentioned to you before that i immediately see like humphrey bogart and lauren mccall because you know they have so such great chemistry they both look right they they would do a fantastic job of course they're not available right now (laughs) some some people of that that feel and that era that era yeah um but, but this is exciting we've we've had you know, some thoughts about this as well, wanting to think of, you know, who are some modern actors that could really pick up and pull this off as well. You had mentioned Jennifer Connelly as mm-hmm. uh, Hannah Dundee. We're, all, we're a big fan of hers, especially from, like, the period of time with The Rocketeer mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But what about you, Scott? Who have you given some thought to? Well, I actually, it was, you know, when, when you look at the art, um, and it's, it's very pulp-driven. It, it, it does very much yes. feel of an era. And, um, again, I do, I'm a big fan of, uh, like, Jennifer Connelly, um, again, the Rocketeer, another comic that I think you know has been sidelined a little bit by a little bit sidelined by what's happened recently with IDW. But going back to the originals, that you know Dave Stewart's original, they're brilliant. But yes. I, I did go back to like Haley Atwell. Um, yes. I think is, is oh, great. Very good for that sort of era. Um, and the rough and tumble sort of style it was, it was Tom Hardy. I think could really oh, pull it off. Oh yes, yeah, that's a good choice too. Um, but yeah, it is. It's, you know, I think it'd be really fascinating to have those sorts of characters. They do. They've got to represent that that pulp era um, as well as right. the modern era. Yeah, I really like both of your choices and Haley Atwell. Oh, you know what a perfect choice. I mean, her Agent Carter TV show. I mm. mean, that was just a fabulous show. I still weep if I when I think about it being cancelled. It's so good. <laughs> Yeah, it was. It was. There was. Yeah, another mi- a missed opportunity. I don't think. I don't think it got the audience it deserved. Actually, that show. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. So, if you're going to sell this comic, because I say we're trying to, I'm trying to throw some other ideas at this. Um, you know, I'm going to cover another, a couple of other books as well. But if you were going to try and sell Zenizot Tales to someone uh, who'd never seen it before, how would you try and sell it to them? <laughs> so. You know, you call it Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, and that almost sells itself. <laughs> it does, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fast automobiles, dinosaurs chasing. 
Yeah. It, it, uh, I do love that title. It's, you know, three words tells you what this series is about. So that was a really great idea that they came up with. It's really interesting to me to think of the fact that they have to license that title from GM because mm. General Motors owns, of course, the trademark on Cadillac. So they can't even use that word <laughs> in the title without paying GM money. <laughs> Which is crazy when you think of it. that might be one of the limitations on it, but uh, it is. You know, it's almost like a perfect elevator pitch, isn't it? Just yes, Cadillacs and yeah. dinosaurs. You don't need ten seconds. You just need three seconds to say three words. That's it. But yeah. <laughs> but you know, with the popularity, like we were talking about, of, of things like Jurassic Park and Mad Max, I guess that's another way to sell it. It it really sort of is Jurassic Park meets Mad Max. Mm. For a modern audience, so the, that's a perfect combination that you were suggesting earlier that I think would sell it. Yeah, I, I think that's 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 how I always see it in my head: is that action adventure, you know, with dinosaurs. Yes, <laughs> it's you know, it's, it's everything. It's everything I've wanted when I was a kid, really. <laughs> <laughs> and still today. And still today, it's perfect. It is. And um, I really enjoy like the mystery and the you know post apocalyptic kind of setting where you know there's kind of like an archaeological discovery. It's like finding things from the 20th century that have survived to that point in time, and they're trying to figure out. Yeah, just like in a recent issue, we were rereading and Hannah Dundee's learning to drive, and she asked Jack what a turn signal is, and <laughs> he has no idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm sure the highway code is uh, a little bit sort of <laughs> out the window. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's brilliant. I mean, that's the thing. It's it's, it's, it's such a um, it's the, the thing is about post-apocalyptic. The, anything that seems to be post-apocalyptic these days is grim. You know, I mean, I love the most recent Mad Max, but it's still a grim look at the future. Walking Dead, it's a grim look at the future. That's all grim look at. The, but this has got heart and an element of fun to it that, you know... Yeah. Um, oh, I, I do really appreciate that, the banter between the two main characters, mm. where you can have very serious moments and then also some levity, mm. you know, and just that, that lightness. Yeah, no, I agree. It, it Again, just another example of the rich world he created because they're also very well-rounded three-dimensional characters. They have, you know, they really are well-rounded because they can joke with each other they can get angry with each other they can have very different points of view but still respect each other's opinions and uh-huh. you don't get those sorts of you know character depth interactions in most comic books no totally agree. yeah these are definitely characters and not not tropes or stereotypes they're, they're really well rounded um yes which i think is a real credit to mark schultz writing some very very different characters and giving them depth because it could it would be easy just to sort of say Oh, they're like this, and you know, off to the races. Here's another dinosaur. But he really does to write this and do it. He really does clearly put his heart into it. And that's another good point. We heard him talk about that. That it was important to him in creating his two characters. He said most people would have naturally made the man the scientist who talks out of knowledge, mm. and the woman the person who believes in, you know. You know, sort of more like a shaman and believes the in rituals and, and all about yes. feeling. And he immediately, as as soon as he knew he wanted two characters like that, he knew he 
wanted to reverse that. So Hannah is the intelligent scientist who thinks with her head, and Jack is the one who reacts and you know follows these mystical ways. So, follows his instincts. Yes. And I think the thing about like with Hannah Dundee as a character in particular, the thing I like the the best really is the fact that she's not a damsel in distress all the time. Right. Uh, it, you know, again, it would have been just easy to have her as be the eye candy that has to be saved, and you know, so she might be intelligent, but always ends up in trouble. But she's never that. Right, and I admire that. Mm. It's quite, I suppose, it was eighty-seven. Sorry, you say that it was first released. That's yes. right. Yes. Yes. So, there, there was a short story in that was Death Rattle Comics number eight. That was an anthology comic. Mm. So the very first sort of pilot, that little short story came out in I think really late 86 November or something but then the comic started in March 87 Wow! so So having such an excellent strong female character at that point in time is remarkable yeah definitely yes it's uh, yeah it's not especially going into sort of the late 80s and early 90s when it was very much a a man's man's world in the comics industry to have her as a standout character is, is really good writing yes I agree Excellent. Very much appreciated. So any final thoughts? Anything Anything you want to finally throw in about Xenozoic or Mark Schultz? Um... Yeah, I, I would really encourage anyone out there who likes this series to join his Facebook page, Mark Schultz Xenozoic Tells and Other Stories, because he posts regular updates about the progress on the new book. He even publishes or will post from time to time little bits of art. Yes, those uh, are exciting to see. Yeah, so it... It's wonderful. It's a wonderful way to follow and keep up with uh, what he's up to. He's not very active. He's not active anywhere else on social media. So that one place is where you can get all the latest information. So I just encourage people to go out and uh, certainly track this story down if you haven't read it, because mm-hmm. it's more than worth it, worthwhile. Definitely. Okay. And where can people find you guys on the internet? Well, thank you for asking. So <laughs> we've. <laughs> We love this invitation. Oh, and I just have to, before we get into our stuff, I have to say how much we love your show. I'm so happy that you reached out to us because we had sadly not found your show on our own. Uh You reached out to us. We subscribed to your show. And the nice thing about it is we now have a back catalog that we're listening our way through, and we're really loving your show. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate it. I've got to listen to this one. Aaron, have you listened to that one? That's exactly right. That's all we keep doing. And I was actually texting a friend of mine just this morning saying hey you've got to listen to this episode of 20th century geek because you'll love it (laughs) well if you i'll tell you what if you guys have got you know i'm doing all kinds i like to keep it different i'm doing all kinds of different topics but if you guys have got any suggestions or anything else you think you know from the 20th century i should be pulling forward into the 21st let me know i'm i'm happy to open up to any topics or opinions Oh, we'll, we'll be listening and we'll share some thoughts with you. But thank you for asking where people can find us because certainly Xenozoic Xenophiles, that's the podcast that we're talking about here that we do dedicated to Xenozoic Tales with Mark Schultz. I hope everyone will give it a listen. Start mm-hmm. with episode eight, which is the Mark Schultz interview. You get to hear him talk for mm-hmm. nearly an hour. So that's fantastic. And But also we do two other podcasts that I think are also underappreciated comics. We have Trekker Talk, which is about Ron Randall's Trekker. She's uh, the lead character in that is a sci-fi bounty hunter in the 23rd century. And it's another example of a strong female character created in 1987 that people who like Hannah Dundee will like Mercy St. Clair as well. She's 
She's her own woman, and she's in charge. And then the third podcast we do is Warlord Worlds, which is about the comic creations of Mike Grell, including his series The Warlord, John Sable, and his run on Green Arrow. Excellent. I'll just say, I've just, I've just started listening to uh, Trekker, um, the pod, your podcast on that, because I, I didn't know anything about that, so that's been really interesting, that one. Excellent. I'm happy to hear that, too. That's yeah. fantastic, Scott. We're going to be really good friends. We, I think, yeah, <laughs> we yeah, like yeah. all the same things. <laughs> I, I do. I'm really enjoying it. It's been an education. I mean, you know, listen to, and I, I did listen to the Mark Schultz interview, and it was fascinating. So um, I'm going to be picking up his other book. I've got a terrible many for names. What's the, what's the name of the, the novella that he wrote that you said was released? Oh, Storms at Sea. Storms, Storms at, at Sea. sea. Oh, it's on my Amazon wish list at the moment, so I've got it there to remind <laughs> me. So I will be getting a copy of that sometime soon. Well, and hopefully Mark Schultz will come to a convention in the UK when he's promoting the new book, if you'll get lucky. I, that'd be awesome. <laughs> if I could meet him, just get him to get a signed copy and just, you know, shake his hand, that'd be fantastic. He's such a nice man. He's always happy to sign things. So it, he's not doing any convention appearances this year while he's working on the book, but he'll be making them next year while he's promoting it. So that'd Brilliant. be great. Excellent. Thank you very much, guys. Um, I shall leave you to your Sunday afternoon. Um, but thank you very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, okay. Scott. This is great. No, excellent. I'll, uh, I'll be in contact. I'll let you know when it comes out. And uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll talk again sometime soon. I'm sure we will. I'm very confident about that, Scott. And thank you again for this. It was a lot of fun. No problem. Thank you, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. So it's really good, guys, and I do recommend if you have any interest in uh, Xenozoic Tales or uh, Trekker or anything like that, please, please do uh, track down their podcast. It's really well produced and a really insightful look at those comics. Anyway, the second comic that I would want to talk about is a bit of a tough one. It was never printed as its own series, and there appears to have only been one collection of it, which is criminal. It appeared in the pages of 2000 AD in the early 90s. I want to talk about Armand Gideon. Now I haven't read this for a few years and I don't have all the issues of 2000 AD with the stories in, but I do intend to after going back and reading what I do have. I'm going to assume that you haven't heard of it. So let's start with an overview of the plot. There is a dimension called the Edge, populated by demons that want nothing more than to escape and destroy whatever they come across. Millennia ago, to stop them, a race of ageless beings called the Silent Ones created two super-destructive robots, Armoured Gideon and his brother, Armoured Jerobal. These titanic creations fought a never-ending battle to stem the flow of demonic creatures. Unfortunately, Jerobal became jealous of the attention Gideon received, and so turned on him. He defeated Gideon, but in his short victory was overwhelmed by the demonic creatures and driven to our dimension. While he managed to stop the flow of demons, he was deactivated and buried on Earth to be forgotten. Back on the edge, Gideon was reactivated and continued the battle. Jump to the 20th century and Jerobal is reactivated and wants revenge on Gideon. Jerobal is able to get Gideon to come to Earth and a knock-out, full-on battle commences. This shouldn't be a problem as the Silent Ones have made them so they will be invisible, except maybe for the, their destruction. 
They can, however, be seen by psychic photographer and reporter Frank Weitz. He's also able to capture them on film. So like any reporter, he pursues them. In the process, he manages to deactivate Gideon, leaving our dimension unprotected. So he must now risk his life to get Gideon back and stop Jeroboam and the demons. And this is just the first story. There were several short and longer series between 1990 and 1995, all written by John Tomlinson and drawn by Simon Jacob. The concept for this series is so good that I am gutted that there are not more stories or a collected edition I can return to. The art is incredibly stylish and the character designs are awesome. It is said that the sign of a good character design is the ability to recognise the character from its silhouette. By that definition, Gideon is a perfect character design, but a silhouette does not do him justice. He is an immense robot built to destroy, but the details shouldn't work. He has a massive barrel chest and an oversized limbs with a thin and sinewy midsection. His design is just so... 90s. Seriously, Google Armoured Gideon 2000 AD and check out the design for yourself. Moreover, the concept is great fun. A giant robot fighting demons. It's simple, high concept fluff at its best. Granted, Gideon doesn't have much character depth, but then he is a robot. There is some much better depth and exploration of the human character, Frank White's, who we find out was a war photographer, which has had its own effect on him. He becomes entwined in this ancient battle and provides a pretty good perspective character for the reader. He's jaded and thinks he has seen it all, but nothing prepares him for Gideon and Jeroboam. A side note about the writing, Gideon and Jeroboam, they may sound like biblical names. Well, you're not far off. They are the two names of a military leader and prophet whose battle and victory over the Midianites is recounted in several chapters of the Jewish Hebrew Bible. You can probably tell that all this incredibly well-drawn demon bashing is great fun, and that's why I like this series, and I think it deserves another look. Recently we had Pacific Rim, which I was a big fan of. I can't think of anything better than a Jaeger-sized Gideon monster-mashing his way across the silver screen. A film of this series would have crazy action, scary demon monsters, and a great story about jealousy and redemption. Hollywood, are you listening? I was very lucky recently to have the opportunity to speak with the creator of Armoured Gideon and former 2000 AD editor John Tomlinson. Okay, so uh, well, first off, thanks very much for taking the time to do this. Um, That's uh, uh, quite alright, it's, it's a pleasure, thank you. I've got to say, it was, it was, uh, I, really tr- I was just chancing my luck trying to get in contact with you so I'm, gl- I'm glad it worked out really contacting Eagle Moss and uh, uh, wasn't sure if it was going to work yes well it's, I, I, I tend to communicate mainly by uh, email because it's easily to, easy to keep track of things so uh, you know I mean, we, we, we've all got uh, desk phones but uh, yeah. you know I, I look at it with deep suspicion on the uh, the few occasions it does ring so yeah. uh, I didn't get your message immediately but, uh, but, but obviously you, know, you left enough details for me to get back to you and I thought well I haven't ever done a podcast, so it might might be fun. So, so um, I, I might I might be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. No, I'm, ho- I'm hoping it is. You me, but uh, I know, I'm sort of looking forward to it. Yeah. No. Well, let's. I'll just give you a gist. There is um, 
you know the idea is I'm looking at a lot of things from the 20th century really sort of that's where pop culture was born and um, for me when I was a kid the thing that sort of got me involved in comics and sci-fi in general and, and all that kind of thing is 2000 AD yeah. So I sort of got into it probably like eighty nine ninety. Um you know, so for me that sort of like the, the, the early nineties stuff is the sort of is two thousand AD to me. Um, I think that was when it first um uh, the, the the format changed. They started doing the glossy covers, I think yes. when the slain the horned god started and uh, uh, the, the, the dead man and various other things. But yeah, it was, it was quite a change of direction for, for two thousand AD. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. It was, I think, it caught on, you know, caught my attention. Um, and I've, I've, since then, I've gone back and read all the earlier stuff uh, for a lot of it. But the not early '90s stuff, I, I still go back and I, you know, I still read it. Some of the, um, it seems like a real weird, strangely punk era. Like there's, you know, you've got like Mark Millar and, and Grant Morrison doing stuff, um, and a lot of other guys like yourself doing just things that just seemed really crazy. And sort of totally out there that I hadn't seen anywhere else, even like in American comics. Yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, certainly now, um, uh, 2008 is, is the only one of its kind. I mean, when I first started reading comics as a kid, I mean, e- the, uh, every newsagent had like a, a rack of, um, of British comics, and the idea that they might all die out would, uh, would, would never have occurred to us. But uh, uh, 2008 is, is the only comic around the era that's still going, and certainly the only um, weekly um, British comic. I mean, it's a real. Anomaly now, mm. and uh, you know, it's um, but it's it seems to have led a, a strangely charmed life. You know, I can only um, assume that it, it it's fated to keep going. I mean, uh, in um, like the, the, the late nineties or, or the nineties when I was working on it, people were always uh, doom saying about two thousand and uh, you know how it would uh, almost certainly never um, uh, survive to reach the. Uh, the, the year 2000, and so it's, you know, the notion that we'd still be going, uh, it would still be going 17 years later, yeah. uh, you know, would have been, I mean, the, the question we always used to get was, well, what will 2000 be called in the year 2000? And, yeah. uh, I mean, serious consideration was given to that that at one point, as well, should we call it 3000 AD? Should should we change it every year so it becomes 2001 AD, 2002, etc., etc.? But, oh, wow. and, uh, I mean, everyone realised um, quite, quite rightly, uh, I'm sure that, that that it's a brand, you know. Yeah, you yeah. Get, uh, 17 years beyond that, and nobody really thinks about the fact that uh, 2000 is uh, is the past. I mean, it's it's just the name of the comic now, and yeah. it's uh, you know that's that, that that's what everyone knows it as. It's pointless to change it, but uh, um, you know, I mean, I'm I'm um, thrilled that it's still going, and I still uh, you know I still read it. They don't send it to me anymore. <laughs> uh, I dropped off the mailing list some time ago, but I I still pick it up. You can still get it in. Yes, um, I was very excited finally, to hear the, the that. Rebellion are, are playing. I don't, I don't know um, how far along they are with it. Whether there's a you know production company or a budget or a cast attached. Yes, I, I suspect not. But I mean, it's uh, it would lend itself uh, brilliantly to that. And also, you know, that that's bound to have a long-term effect on the uh, the, the, the longevity of the comic. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's um, you know, it, it was it was one of a kind. I think even when it, it when it first appeared, when it was first published. But um, you know, it's I think. Have survived well. It has survived this long, uh, largely because it's a 
it's so good and it's yes. um, you know, not not afraid to reinvent itself, which it, it still does, and from time to time, it still it still kept a lot of uh, surprising and uh, you know even shocking people. Well, I think that's the thing is it's it's consistently been good and and fresh, um, but it's also like the birth in place, you know, for it's like the um, a trialing ground, paying your dues for a lot of. Uh, you know, writers and artists and stuff that you then see go on to do, you know, uh, big things. Let's say like Grant Morrison, Warren Ellis, Alan Moore, all these British writers that have gone on to work in, you know, uh, DC and Marvel and stuff. So it's, it clearly has cachet. It still does today that people will go, go in back and look at it. Yes, I think with Alan Moore, we wanted to describe 2008 as a, as a shop window for American comics companies, you know. It's, yes. Uh, I mean, the, the, the nature of the industry over here is that, uh, you know, we still can't work, especially now when there virtually isn't a, a British um, comics industry. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's no way that 2008 can afford to pay the same rates or certainly, uh, you know, give them um, creators ownership of their work to the same extent that um, American comics can. Mm. And so I suppose it was inevitable, really, that, um, you know, that, that, that the best of 2008's creators would, uh, would move to the States and would get work elsewhere. But, um, yeah, so so many of them did start off on 2008, and it's um, it is it is a great training ground because you really only you only have six pages, which is um, you know, especially if you're writing a, a complete episode of something like a, a Future Shock or a you know, Thug's Terror Tales or Pulp Fiction or whatever the various uh, one stories. It's uh, it's a very restrictive format, so it forces you to be uh, to be creative and. Uh, I, I know. I think to go from from um, from that to the luxury of having twenty twenty two page stories is um, you know it must must be um, an incredible uh, luxury for, uh, for, yeah. for British um, right Le- less so for the uh, I, I don't know what the uh, the deadlines are like for artists. I imagine they're quite uh, quite intensive. I mean uh, the, the idea of drawing a twenty two page story is obviously a, a bit. I mean, as somebody once said, it takes. Um, you know, three seconds to type. Uh, you know, a thousand uh, ravening um, yeah. monsters come over the hill, but uh, an artist might spend a week drawing it. So it's uh, it, it's tougher for the artist. But but of course, um, you know, American comics have hoovered up a, a fair amount of, of British artists as well. And some of the some of the, the t- people like Richard Elson and, and Kev Walker and Doug Braithwaite. And, I mean, almost all of them, mm. top artists, all seem to make to have made the transition quite. Happily, and uh, you know, the, the, and, and Alan Davis in particular, who's um, uh, you know, he started off in, in English comics, but yeah, yeah. Is, is absolutely ideal for super superhero comics. And uh, you know, one of his um, big breaks was also in 2008 with uh, um, Harry Twenty on the High Rock. And uh, I think, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to misquote him, but I'm sure I remember him saying that that uh, he really had to, uh, to, to to up his game on that uh, strip because it was um, it was such a punishing schedule with uh, having to produce um, six pages every week that, that mm. he had to modify the way he drew and you can see if you look back on that now you can see his style evolve throughout the course of that series until it becomes um, uh, much uh, slicker and m- much more like the way he draws now um, but um, anyway I'm, I'm rambling off onto a weird cul-de-sac now so probably, no it's good probably it's, it's fascinating well the thing I'll say is actually if we, if we wind back a little bit so how how did you get involved in comics? Was it always something you wanted to do, or was it uh, did it just land in your lap? Or well, I'd always I'd always been a fan. I mean, like almost mm. everyone in in, com- in comics, I uh, I grew up uh, loving um, comics. And um, I mean, when I, when I was a kid, I used to read things like uh, Smash and Lion and Valiant. 
all the things that were on the shelves um, at, at that time. So I was, uh, I was very inspired by those. But then when I was uh, at 10 or 12 or something, um, one of my mates from school, his, uh, his mum uh, ran a, a comic store on the, on, on the local market, and it was full of an old uh, Marvel and DC um, titles. So I, I very quickly became a, a Marvel fan and started mm. uh, relentlessly copying all the artwork <laughs> and trying to create my own stories and so on. And uh, so you know, I, I just grown up with it. And um, I, I went to, uh, to, to art college. I studied um, graphic design, but it was always kind of uh, the back of my mind that I wanted to, to get into comics in some capacity. So, uh, I mean, at, at the end of um, the, the first year, they did they did a, a kind of a placement where you could go and work in a design studio or an ad agency or whatever, and uh, for two weeks um, in order to try out your, uh, your, your, your supposed skills. Uh, but I, I um, you know, I, I really wanted to go to, to Marvel, really actually any anywhere in comics. I just wanted to, uh, to, to have a go at uh, uh, working at comics in some form. So uh, I wrote to uh, IPC as they were then, mm-hmm. and uh, DC Thompson, and Marvel UK, and uh, only Marvel replied actually, and they uh, they invited me straight away. So I I went. To, they were based in Jadwin House in, in Kentish Town at the time, which was uh, I think the building's still there. I think it's long since been converted into flats, but it was it was an absolute tumble down ruin at the time. You know, when it, when it rained, the water would pour in from three different cracks in the ceiling. And all the uh, you know the desks were placed around the outside of the office because um, uh, if you place them in the inside, uh, the middle of the office, there was a good chance the floor would collapse. So that was, that was the kind of state the building was in. And there were piles of comics uh, all the way along the corridor, not just the ones that Marvel UK published, but you know they, they would get um, regular shipments of everything that Marvel UN yeah. published at the time. Um, and, um, so, so that that was around time uh, you know Don Byrne was doing Fantastic Four. Frank Miller was doing uh, Daredevil. It was a really good uh, good time for comics. Mm. I just became more enthused than ever. And um, and when I uh, I left um, college, you know, I mean, got, got a, I got a degree in graphic design, but still I only really wanted to work in comics. So uh, I contacted Marvel again, and they uh, and they gave me a regular job. So I, I was there for about five years. But I've been in and out of comics, either in a freelance or a full time capacity, um, ever since. You know, it's never really gone away. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I can't think of anything I. I'd rather do, or <laughs> that I'd be capable of doing by now. I think uh, comics has ruined me for any other uh, walk <laughs> of a life uh, professionally. Well, but yeah, the, the short answer is uh, I was a fan, and yeah. uh, you know, I, I managed to turn it into uh, into regular work. One of the lucky few that were able to turn it into a into a job. What when you were at Marvel then? What was it? You, I read it recently. Actually, it was uh, you and Dan Abnett. Uh, your run on um, uh, Knights of Pendragon. Um, which I quite enjoyed. I, I, it's, I love. I like. Really like the early, you know, the Marvel UK stuff. So you got Knights of Pendragon, Motormouth, and Kill Power, um, Death's Head, all that kind of stuff. It, it's, it's all very British, but very nineties at the same time. There's lots of pouches and big guns, but uh, it's still very British. Well, did, did you read, ever read the uh, the original series of uh, Knights of Pendragon before that all started? It was. Uh... Um, uh, that, that era that you're talking about, it began. Yes, it began in the early '90s, and it really started when uh, Paul Neary came to Marvel UK as um, as the, uh, the the editor in chief. But previous to that, um, Steve White and Jenny O'Connor were the managers. Dan, Dan and I uh, wrote with a lot of plot input from Steve, and he was yeah. at least as much as involved as we were. And, uh, and it was drawn by Gary Erskine, who was um, yeah, nowadays he's perhaps better known as an inker, but he's still very much in and around comics and. Uh, that was some of his first professional work. So those first series, I, I, um, 
I have a great affection for. But um, you know, as, as, as good as some of the other stuff that came out of um, the Neeriverse, which is what everybody calls it now, mm. I, mean, I think Death Ed in, in particular was a, was, was a was a classic. I, I I don't think we really did right by uh, Knights of Pendragon with with the second series. I think it became much more of a, a conventional comics uh, superhero series, which it, it never was. Before. I'm not sure what it was before. I think it was uh, probably closest to a Vertigo title than anything. It certainly had elements of horror, and the, the, the superhero stuff was, was very much in, in, um, incidental to the main action. But, um, uh, I, I mean, when Paul Neary took over at Marvel, he was very determined that it should all be about superheroes, and, mm. um, you know, and, and we we took the decision rightly or wrongly to try and turn Knights of Pendragon into a superhero series. And I, I always felt it, it, it strained to become a superhero series and it never quite worked, quite worked for me. But um, anyway, to go back to what I said at the beginning, did you read the, um, the, the, the first series? Of I have done, yeah. I've got, I've got yeah. um, weirdly, I, I got, there's a, there is a collection of the first nine issues and I've got that and I've since collected um, like the original issues and that sort of thing. So I have read it, and it is very much like an eco. In in fact, anything. It's in some cases it's very similar to like the messages of like Finn and Slain and and those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. So I see why why you would say that. Yes, all the uh, the, the, uh, the green stuff, for want mm. of a better phrase, and the environmental aspects, which was uh, that was um, very in at the time in the early nineties. Uh, and I I don't know what we uh, we, we hope to achieve by. Uh, <laughs> With, with the environmental aspects of, uh, of Nights of the Dragon, but even now, you know, I mean, I very rarely ever um, go into uh, McDonald's, for example, but uh, if I ever do, I'm always reminded of Pendragon, I feel incredibly guilty, you know, that I'm somehow uh, contributing to, uh, to, to the, the death of the planet. I yeah. mean, uh, it was um, Ben Elton said in one of his comedy routines at the time that uh, eventually mankind will choke to death on a burger because uh, the, the idea being that... Uh, Ways of the Amazon and the lungs of the world were being um, ripped down to, uh, to to make room for scrub pasture in order to feed uh, uh, cattle that would then become uh, um, you know Big Macs as a mm. later date. Now, I, uh, whether that's true or not, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, w- I wouldn't want to uh, you know incur any kind of retroactive lawsuits. But um, that that was what everyone was uh, was into at the time. So yeah. we, we uh, you know that that was a, a big aspect of. Um, Pendragon. Yeah, the, the managing editor at that time was um, well, it, it, it sort of divided between uh, Jenny O'Connor and, uh, and and Steve White, but uh, the, the environment. Uh, I mean, Arthurian from Dan, who's uh, you know a real kind of Arthurian buff and had, had read um, you know Mort Arthur and all, all the, um, the, the, the the King Arthur stories in various forms, which yeah. you know, I later had the SWAT up on. Uh, but I was. Um, Drafting because I'd worked on uh, on Captain Britain, Marvel UK's Captain Britain uh, monthly, and I, I was familiar with that um, that side of it. So those those three things were all woven together to, to create the first series. And it's um, you know I mean it's I, I look back at it now and it's it's it's, it's a bit clunky and uh, you know, there's a lot wrong with it. But you know I, I can all I can, I can see I can still see the enthusiasm you know the the the, the, the love we had of the material and and also just because we were all much younger at the time just actually writing comics, episodic comics, you, you mm. can just come learning on the job. And particularly Gary Erskine, who's who's always just gets gets better with um with, with every episode. I mean there was uh, the, the I think it was the first nine issues have, have been um, collected, but um you know the, there was there was another 
there's another nine issues, 18 in total. And um, Gary's um, artwork just goes goes bonkers. It just gets better and better as he goes along. You're not wrong. I really like. I mean, towards the end, it gets really good. I mean, it's 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 a series that um, it it sort of in, in both volumes. I think, like you say, volume one and volume two, um, it's on the periphery of like the Marvel universe. But the, but the artwork in it throughout is is always interesting, you know. It's always really really good, um, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons I like it. And I'm always disappointed to see that. I know Marvel, you know, it's 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 a very fickle, it's a very fickle company, really. You know, they'll print and reproduce stuff that uh, that they know is going to sell. They're a business, but the fact that they've never produced a, a full collection of some of this stuff from the, the Marvel UK, I think, is really disappointing. Well, they haven't. They haven't. I mean, there was uh, there was a, a collection came out. I think last uh, last year of uh, uh, Frontier Comics, which is like mm. Marvel UK's um, um, attempt in the early nineties to do a, a Vertigo um, type uh, series. And I um, know uh, there were there were I think there were four uh, titles um, at, uh, at part of Frontier Comics, and they were they were much more on, on the kind of the. Um, the horror well, it's it much more like Vertigo than anything else I suppose the, the, the only one that re- I really remember now is uh, Children of the Voyager which was written by uh, Nick Abanzis and drawn by Paul Johnson and it's, it's every bit as good as um, anything that, that, that I, I remember Vertigo were doing at the time yeah. um, and um, yeah, that, that's something that um, belatedly perhaps since it came out in the early 90s that, that Marvel have recognised was, was good and uh, that, that's been collected in a very nice um Package a tra- trade paperback, you can buy all that stuff, and uh, you know it's. Um, but but I think um, if if they're not doing um, quite so much new or original material now, it's it's because it's um, it, it's really incredibly pricey, and it, it's um, it, it's very um, very expensive um, to, to produce, and um, you know there's uh, there's no real guarantee of a return on your investment. So I, I think perhaps sure. uh, you know Marvel or Panini now are a bit more. Risk averse than they uh, than they used to be, yeah. but I think I think also there are other factors at play. When um, um, Disney um, first um, uh, took over Marvel, I mean at, at that at that point, Panini were doing some um, wonderful um, original strips. There was a there was a Spider Man strip um, in, in uh, I not can't remember if it was weekly, fortnightly, or monthly, but a, a UK originated Spider Man strip written by I think Ferg Handley and drawn by Andy Tong, who's a fantastic artist and it was just just lovely stuff but um it, when disney took over it, it very swiftly became a reprint title again and i think mm-hmm. that was uh, that was an edict from above rather than uh, marvel uk suddenly decided well you know this stuff isn't selling let's just go back to being a reprint company i, I don't think that was the, that was the plan at all because they were producing some uh, some, some really impressive work that, uh, that, that still stands up now um so yeah, as ever with British comics, there's certainly no shortage of, of talent and yeah. um, talented creators, and and certainly no shortage of ideas. But there's, uh, the, the, you really have to go to the states to uh, to, to, to 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 get work, um, you know, to to actually, um, uh, well, you know, to, to to do anything with it. I suppose I say they break, yeah, say so like say this, what they call it, breaking into the big leagues kind of thing. It's the the international stage. But yeah, okay. So going to going back to two thousand AD, then. So when you went over there, um, was was Armored Gideon your first work then um, for two thousand AD? Well, it was my first um, regular series. I mean, I I, I went um, freelance in I can't remember when it was. It was uh, either nineteen 
89 or 90, I, I can't remember, but uh, um, at, at, at that point, uh, Steve Cook, who uh, who was the designer on 2000 AD for a long time, he, he designed that sort of familiar red lozenge 2000 AD logo, mm. everyone knows. Well, he, he and I start off at Marvel UK about the same time, and he, he went freelance about uh, six months before I did, and, um, and he got studio space in uh, this place in Blackfriars, which is, it was only about a five-minute walk from um, from where 2080's offices were at the time. It was at this place called uh, Irwin House, which um, Steve McManus always used to, uh, to, to describe as a Vermin House because it, <laughs> <laughs> it was because of the hot and cold running rodents. So it was a, it was a terrible place, but. Uh, um, Steve had started getting work from 2018, and he said, "Well, look, you know, now's a great time to go freelance. There's a unit just come up at the uh, at the studio. You know, they're needing design and editorial cover. Just just go freelance." So, you know, after much deliberation, I I, um, I eventually did. But uh, what, what the first things I I wrote a couple of future shocks. There was um, and one of those was drawn by uh, uh, um, Simon Jacob, who's the artist on Armored Gideon, mm. and it was just a one-off story called. Uh, called Fat Chance, but um, I mean, Simon's artwork is, is very different uh, than, than anything that appeared in 2008 at the time, and since, actually, it was, but, but it, it, it certainly lent itself towards horror and uh, fantasy, and I, you know, I, I didn't count it before, I was at Marvel UK, he'd sent some samples in, which, which we published, and, um, you know, I, I, I knew his work quite well, so uh, that, that future sort of seemed to go down quite well, and, and so uh, Richard Burton and Alan McKenzie, who were the editors at the time, were Simon to, to draw, and they, they, you know, they, they, they thought of me because of that future shock. So, um, I, uh, I, I suppose Armour Gideon evolved from that. But uh, I was still, you know, I still very. I think this was either just before or around the same time as uh, as Knights of Pendragon. I was still very new um, to writing comics, and uh, the thing I remember most about the first series of Armour Gideon was that uh, I made it up as I went along. <laughs> I came up with the. Uh, with what I thought was, uh, you know, pretty reasonable first episode, but then yeah. I had absolutely no idea where it was going to go after that. And um, and I remember I, I went to a convention at the time where it was it was announced and it was Simon, Simon's art had had some some artwork together and he was showing it to people. And uh, someone came up to me and said, "So, uh, so what's it about?" And my mind went completely blank. I had absolutely no idea. <laughs> um, so I uh, I really winged uh, the entire series, and uh, much to my chagrin, I mean that. Uh, the first series is, is the only one that, um, that that's ever reprinted. I mean, first yeah. of all, it's in black and white, which is a great shame because Simon is also, among other things, a very fine colour artist. Mm. You know, his colour artwork is, is beautiful, but uh, um, the, the, the first um, the first series um, is is the only one that gets reprinted. The, all subsequent series were all thoroughly plotted and thought out, and uh, you know had a beginning, middle, and an end. I, I knew where I was going with it before I started writing it, but. Uh, but yes, it was um, that. That was that was my first 2080 series, and I think I'd only written a handful of uh, Future Shocks before then. And um, in the meantime, uh, when I, either Alan or Richard were on holiday, I'd fill in for a couple of weeks in the office. I'd do bits of design, or I'd uh, I'd write um, Farg notes, you know, the introductory uh, yeah. text issue, and I'd, I'd answer letters and so on. And um, and then I, I just kind of drifted into it, really. Um, and the thing is, although I started off reading 2018 when it when it first came out, I was I was still at school. I somehow drifted away after about um, 20 issues, and uh, and so so I, I wasn't a, a, a complete fan at, at first. I mean, when I I was uh, 
working at Marble UK, I, I shared an office with uh, Simon Furman and, uh, and Richard Starkings, who are both uh, absolutely manic 2018 fans, would, would get every issue and sit and you know, read it in the office and talk about it. And uh, so I was always aware of this and the, you know, the amazing uh, Bond artwork. And I love the, uh, the Dread storyline, the, the Alabama blimps, and mm. uh, you know, a, a, a lot of the classic stuff I was aware of. But, but when I first began to, to work on it, uh, editorial and doing the design, and, and so I, I had to swat up on an awful lot. And uh, I realized that, uh, yeah, well, like you, I, I, I suppose I began reading around the same time as you did. But uh, I also realized I'd missed some of the best stuff. I'd missed some of the real classics. And I, I had to go back and uh, read things like, you know, Judge Cal, uh, Ch- uh, Cal uh, uh, yeah. you know, the Judge, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Judder, and, uh, and, and all the early Slain stuff. And uh, I was um, belatedly um, blown away by it. Yeah, I mean that's it. I think really from sort of the mid eighties, there's a load of stuff in there that is really, really good. I mean, it caught my eye, and that was it. I was pretty much hooked. I think at that point. But I have to say, you know, going back to Ahmed Gideon, um, I'm, I reread it actually last night just to sort of uh, the the first story. And, oh, um, the first story, of course. <laughs> uh, just to sort of like you know, refresh. So the first, you know, that ten eleven issue uh, episode uh, story. So I'm curious now to ask. So when you started that, and you got, you know, Frank White's goes off to the edge. Did you you, you had no idea then that his brother Jerobal was part of it? Then that was a complete on the spot decision later on. Yes, yeah, that was. Um, I, I mean, I, I remember. I have vague memories of wanting to pit Armored Gideon against somebody who would be a, a worthy challenger and mm. somebody a run for his money. And up until that point, uh, he'd only. Um, uh, you know, annihilated various um, unpleasant-looking demons. So, yeah. You know, I, the, the, yeah. So the idea of uh, uh, bringing his brother into—I I think uh, he was first discovered at the bottom of a, a sinkhole in the yes. district, or something, yeah. or something you know, falling to pieces, and was uh, you know, unwisely revived. So it was, uh, yes, it was. It was for two reasons really. It was one to give um, Armageddon a worthy opponent, and also to, to bring the action um, back to earth um, for a little bit. Yeah. Um, but but yes, it. Um, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing that uh, that, that um, probably a bad thing in those days that you didn't really have to supply um, a complete um, plot for for an entire series. You really could just make it up as you went along. And I'm sure that uh, you know some of the more established writers on the title, you know, Mills, Wagner, and uh, mm. Grant, and so on, who are you know, still working on it, um, were. were Thoroughly plotting uh, everything, but um, you know, uh, Richard and, and Alan really gave me free reign to just um, uh, do whatever I wanted. So it was, um, I know it was, it was a double-edged sword, but I think, um, I, I, well, I suppose I did get away with it because I, it, it was popular enough that they commissioned a, a, a couple more series after that. Oh, oh, it's really popular. I mean, I love one of the things I was going to ask then is because I, I think it's a really fun series, uh, and like I say, that first one is a hook, and I do, I do you know, the, the later ones. Um, I think you, you like you say you can tell you've sort of got a, a grasp of it, like a real grasp of like what you want to say with it. Um, but the character designs. So did did you have those in mind and hand those over to Simon Jacobs, or was it did he design them? No, uh, not at all. The only thing I, I designed was uh, was the logo, the Armored Gideon logo. I, was, I designed that based mm. on the way that Simon had drawn the robot. But no, I mean I would. Uh, I would describe the, the, you know, the, the characters pretty thoroughly in the script. I, I wrote quite wordy scripts at the time, but then Simon would draw something completely different, which was, um, you know, way better than what I'd come up with. So I didn't really mind. 
And um, one of the series I really enjoyed was um, was one that incorporated uh, Simon's own characters. The, 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 the very first thing I saw of his, it was it was a strip that he'd both written and drawn that he sent into Marvel UK as a as a sample story called uh, called Disenchantment. It, it, it featured um, you know a, a, a wizard, a, a kind of a, a, a warrior, and um, mm. a, a small demonic um, character he called uh, Firebrat, and it was it was a very kind of tongue in cheek kind of Terry Pratchett sort of um, idea, and um, I was really like that. It was always at the back of my mind. So, you know, I, I, later on, I, I can't remember if it was the second or the third series. I, I brought all those characters into it just um, to, to give Simon an excuse to uh, to draw them again. And that uh, was, um, uh, I, I think that the um, the, the wizard was called uh, Bookwise. The, um, the, the the warrior character was called Hawker, and, and um, Firebrat also appeared in there. And they they were just um, woven into an already existing storyline but um you know, i mean uh, those are all entirely designed by simon and um as were the monsters so i, I can't uh, can't claim any credit for that no i mean i love the design i think it's one of my um for many many years it's been one of my sort of go-to doodles you know when you sort of sat bored in a meeting or whatever i sort of just <laughs> and i'm a uh, gideon's head and, and body it's always been one of my go-to sort of Doodles. I've always really lo- I loved the character design. Yeah, um, it's, it's a very, it's a very um, strong and distinctive um, character design, isn't it? So it doesn't look like any other uh, um, robot in 2018 history. I, I think that was my only uh, brief, really, as well from uh, from Alan and Richard was uh, you know, giant robots are, are popular in 2018. Right as a giant robot story, <laughs> and uh, it it, um, it it came out of that. But um, you know, I, I think um, he sits reasonably well in the pantheon of 2008 giant robots. I, I, I'm not sure where well he'd stack up against Mechquake. I mean, I'd like mm. to see them, uh, you know, battle it out someday. But, um, yeah, he was, you know, he, uh, Armageddon was reasonably popular for a, you know, for a, you know, yeah. reasonably yeah, long period of time. No, it's good for, it's one of my, it's one of those, again, I, I sort of, when I look back at um, the period I was a fan of, that sort of early to mid ish 90s I you know because I go from about I say about 89 90 to usually about 97 ish when I sort of drifted away for a bit um all the series I can remember other than you know you like say you've got Judge Dredd Rogue Trooper Nemesis the Warlock all those kinds of ones that I would say are standard but there was a lot of other stories like Armored Gideon Finn uh Maniac 5 Big Dave that were really sort of like enjoyed but I've what never... did you think of the, the summer offensive, by the way? Because that, that, that was a very kind of bold experiment for 2080 at the time. It was uh, um, Alan and Richard were still editing it, and they wanted to, uh, they felt um, at, at the time that 2080 had become a bit safe, and they wanted to take it a bit more back to its uh, punky roots. So, so they, they, they essentially turned the whole comic over to, to three writers, uh, Grant Morrison, Mark Miller, and, and John Smith, and mm. um, it gave them free reign to, to do what they liked with it. I mean, uh, 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 Morrison and Miller came up with a really great um, uh, Dread storyline, which is drawn by Carl Zuscaro. I still think it's some of his best artwork. Um, uh, Mark Miller and um, Steve Yole created Maniac 5, which, again, is an, I think it's just another great giant robot story. And um, But you have things like uh, Really and Truly, drawn by um, Ryan Hughes, which yes. is... Uh, it was, it was a it, it was a, a humour strip, I, I think, and it, the art was much more cartoony and stylised than 2008 had been used to. But again, it was it, it was a real experiment. Uh, I think the thing that 
polarise everyone was was Big Dave, which um, you know, which had fantastic artwork by um, uh, Steve Parkhouse. Is uh, it was incredibly funny. It was, it was actually my favourite series of um, of the Summer Offensive, but uh, wasn't noticeably uh, notably science fiction based or had anything really to do with with 2008. So I, that that really polarised the audience. People either loved it or hated it, and. Um, I, I often, I mean, I, I certainly always ask people, that, do you remember the Summer Offensive? I do, I know, I really do remember the Summer Offensive. And, did you uh, enjoy that period? I did, and I think it's one of those, like, when you say about going back to its punk roots, I think that's exactly what it is that I think I really enjoyed, is there was an element of, and I, I wouldn't, I think I was too new to comics to say if I knew it was safe before that, mm. but to me, this did take it into sort of like the next gear, you know, saying, oh, you can be that crazy. Like you, you've got. Or it is your imagination that's holding you back, yeah. sort of thing. Um, but I, no. I, I have to say, though, I, I think the, uh, the the notion of um, two thousand years as a as a punk comic is it, I tell you, it's something that's been grafted onto it um, with the, the benefit of hindsight. I think because mm. I, I don't really think um, that was what they had in mind at the time. I mean, um, people, the, the guys who were working on it at the time, uh, Wagner, Grant, and Mills, and so on, they're about. Even then, they're about ten years older than the, than the average punk. So it was it was it was their attempt to, to to do something that they'd never really been able to do before. They they all started off in romance comics, which obviously was quite uh, quite restrictive um, in terms of the kind of comics they wanted to do. And uh, they they subsequently moved on to things like uh, battle and uh, battle action, which are war stories, which um, it, it, you know it, 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 there's much more of a violent content, and also. Um, uh, Oh, action! That's right. I, I forgot mm. the title um, edited by Steve McManus, who was obviously um, one of the later editors of 2008, and was much more violent and unpleasant. But I, I don't remember it ever being a, a part of the punk movement. You know, I think that's, that's something that's been on, imposed on it. Yeah, I think the thing when I look back at it all now, and when especially when I look at like okay, the summer offensive and the early 90s stuff, it I, I don't know about punk because i think you're right i think there's a retrospective sort of like view on that but i definitely think it fits into there was a feel in the early 90s and i think this goes across a lot of comics of um a a friend of mine actually runs a comic shop he refers to it as like the early 90s lunacy like it's a real rebellion against everything that seems to have gone before yes you've got the dark knight and yes you've got Watchmen and all these sort of like you know classics or whatever um but the the big things that all like in the nineties, you know, you get like the birth of Image, and you get you know the Summer Offensive. You get people making comics like The Mask, you know, um, Dark Horse start doing crazy stuff. Like everyone is just really pushing the envelope of just, you know, well, that, you that was go also when more. Image started up uh, more or less as well, which is when the, all Marvel's uh, best creators uh, jumped ship and started. Mm do their own comics. I mean, okay, that, that was probably more towards the mid-90s, but yes, it was all uh, symptomatic of something uh, Something was was going on. Um, and I think, um, going back to the Summer Offensive, I think um, probably the people who reacted negatively towards it were people who'd been with 2008 from the beginning. And yeah. um, with, with anything that's been going for a great length of time, you have a very a, a very kind of loyal core readership who uh, you know been with it from the beginning and and think you know they know, um, you know the, the, the best you know the best of two thousand that they they remember the, the, what they consider the best stuff they don't really like anything that deviates too much from that it's it's the same with Doctor Who to some extent which is now very different from uh, how it was when I was um, mm. a kid and I used to watch it it's become something else in 
entirely now. And you couldn't um, you, you couldn't go back and do Doctor Who the way it used to be because then everyone was, who's grown up with it since and now feels that they know what Doctor Who should should be will say, well, yeah, it's not like it should be. That's, that's not what Doctor Who should be. And um, you have a series of, of core readerships who've been with 2018 from the beginning and, and remember certain eras with great affection. It always coincides with, with when they were growing up and when yeah. they were most into comics. And so... I mean, it's, it's always very brave and, and, um, and to some extent reckless to, to completely throw everything up in the air and start again like they did with um, the summer offences. But I, I think it's uh, every so often you have to do something like that. And uh, that, that was also when um, uh, Ryan Hughes completely um, and Steve Cook redesigned the look of the, the comic. And this new uh, font came in, uh, Scrotnig, which all the cover lines were, were lettered in and uh, you know, the credit cards were replaced. And, mm. uh, the whole magazine had a complete design overhaul, really. But um, we were all very excited about it. But I remember uh, being in the office um, one day, there was uh, someone had, um, had torn out um, a page of Big Dave and nailed it to the front door of Egmont House, where 2000 AD was at the time, and scrawled across it in blood-red lettering, Why, Tharg, why? <laughs> um, which is, uh, you know, is, is a great shame. But it, it just goes to show that, I mean, people are uh, as, as passionate about 2000 AD as they've ever been. But, yes, uh, yeah. You know, they, well, they, they certainly are passionate about it, there's no doubt about that. It's one of those things, I think, fans are always going to be fans, and when you start to change things... It's always going to upset everyone. You can't keep, every, you know, sorry, it's going to upset someone. You can't keep everybody happy. But you've got to stay relevant. And I think, even at the time, I remember reading Big Dave. I found it hilarious. I remember really thinking it was funny. And I was trying to explain it to someone actually recently when I was doing my research for these episodes. Uh, and they sort of looked at me a bit like, you know, wow, that sounds odd. Um, but I, I remember thinking at the time you had, um, you'd already had like the young ones, you'd had Bottom. And it felt a bit in that vein of sort of like just a little... It is offensive, but it's also doing it for satire. Oh, yeah, you could just tell reading it that, uh, you know, Miller and Morrison were, were really uh, having a you know a blast and writing and making each other laugh. And yeah. uh, it must have been such fun to write. And, and Steve Parkhouse obviously loved it because uh, you know, the, the artwork was, was just every bit as funny. And um, I, I uh, you know, it was... It should be collected. I'd love to read it all again now, and because uh, I haven't read it since, um, since since I had to edit it at the time, but I'd, I'd love to. Uh, I would to love to see it, it all collected. I have to. Um, in fact, well, actually, recently, and uh, knowing that you work for Eagle Moss, um, I've got I've got to mention a a, a, comp- a competitor. I noted that Hatchet Partworker do have have <laughs> looked at doing. Yeah, well, it's actually pronounced Hachette, but I love the way you pronounce it, Hatchet. Yes. Everyone should pronounce it Hatchet. Hatchet, Hatchet. Uh, I've always, yeah, Hatchet, okay, Hachette. Uh, um, they, they, I think they've started to sort of do um, the idea of a, 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 an ultimate 2000 AD collection. Like they did, they did, the, they did the Judge Dredd mega collection. Yes. Um, they're looking at doing the 2000 AD me, uh, ultimate collection. I think the first four episodes were um, Slaying the Horn God, part one, um, Strontium Dogs, um and I forgot the other one was, um, but there was no inclination of what the rest of the series would be. But like, it was one of those I was thinking, ooh, there's an opportunity. There might be here. We might, I might get some of these things. Well, the, the idea of doing a 2008 or Dread related collection has come up various times over the years at, uh, at Eagle Moss, but mm. it's, uh, 
it, it was it was always um, felt not not by me but um, by management it, it might be a bit too niche and a bit too English to have uh, international appeal. I know that two thousand uh, Eagle Moss markets its various titles and artworks throughout the world, and uh, I know it's uh, it, it was it was felt that it would be um, uh, that it wouldn't be su- sufficient interest in it, which I think is. Um, is is a great shame, but I I, I um I mean I will, from a personal point of view, if if Eagle Moss wants to do anything 2008 or dread related, I would uh, I'd want to be involved, but I wouldn't have final say in the way mm. that I would have been when I was say um the, the editor, and I think um you know to, to work on something like that, but not have it the way I would I would like to be like it to be, and not have total control. I think um I know that that would probably um tarnish my my memories of having uh, been editor of 2000 AD and I, um, I so I'm, I'm I'm both drawn to it and kind of wary of it at the same time and, and yeah. um, it's um so it's 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 not um it's not coincidental that, that Eagle Moss hasn't done anything 2000 AD related but uh, I I I haven't pushed for it I think um perhaps for those reasons I mean having said that I I did love the um the the, the, the dread uh, mega things like um, America and some of the classic mm. 2080 storylines and as, as a reader I, I um you know I, I was I, I enjoyed those a lot yeah so I, I, I collected that as well so I, I'm uh, much my wife's chagrin they take up quite a lot of space but the hardback editions are fantastic um, it's nice to see some of those you have a room in your house devoted to, to, to comics and graphic novels and toys and various uh, comics related things so how do you fit it all in well, I do at the moment. We have, I have got a lot of books I was available at the moment, but uh, yes, space is a commodity at the moment. I think uh, I'm and I'm losing that battle. So, the, the attic <laughs> well, before I got comics. married, and my, my entire flat was uh, was festooned with comics and co- not so much toys, as I've never really been a toy collector, but uh, mm. comics, books, graphic novels, and uh, you know, the, 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 which. Um, I know uh, everything has been uh, more or less moved to a to, to a smaller room upstairs, which is like a, a small museum of my old life. Yeah. I kept the best stuff, all my favourite stuff, but I have, uh, you know, with great reluctance, had to part company with a lot of it, just in order to, uh, you know, fit in everything else, like uh, you know, cupboards and a cooker and a telly, yeah. <laughs> all the things you need to to, to survive in uh, in a domestic existence. That's true. I'm, yeah, I've had to sacrifice certain things just so. Uh... Yeah, just so we can have a bed, really. It's, uh, it's <laughs> well, yeah, that, that it's uh, it's one of those. But no, it's been. I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, you know, from a, a an eagle moss perspective, I, I also um, I, I collect the uh, the DC graphic novel collection, and um, and that's been another wonderful one where you know it's introduced me because I was a Marvel kid when I was younger, but I've sort of like you know I love Batman, I love Superman, so that collection has really introduced me to stories I. I hadn't read before, which has been really good. Yeah, it's strange when you're a kid, isn't it? You, you always um, seem to be polarised towards one or the other. You either love Marvel or love DC, and if you love mm. Marvel, then you hate DC. And uh, no, it, it took me um, years to really get into anything um, a DC um, produced. I, I think probably my favourite comic series of, of all time is, um, is, is still uh, Jack Kirby's um, Fourth World series for DC, mm. which the first thing he wrote and drew after leaving Marvel. I mean, it's uh, it's so unusual, so unlike anything in comics before or since, and uh, you know, I uh, I still love it. I mean, I'd uh, I'd love to see it made into a movie, but 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 again, it could never be the movie I have in my head. So perhaps it's just as well that it hasn't been. But yeah. I, I I could just uh, 
you know, I, I look at that um, that artwork and those comics now, and it, it's I still marvel at it in the same way I did as a, as a kid. I still, uh, I still got the magic for me. I know. I agree. I mean, I look back at you know some of the collections I've got, especially like Jack Kirby stuff from the sixties. All that in and. and um, the other one is, I really like Bill Sinkovich. I can never pronounce his name. Bill Sinkovich's um, art from like the seventies and early eighties, and um, even when the stories aren't, you know, to my taste, I can just sit and look at the art, and I think they're fantastic. And I really enjoy some of that. Yeah. Um, talk about movies, though. One of the, and obviously we've mentioned the fact that uh, there was a Judge Dredd TV show announced, and I really enjoyed the 2012 Dredd film with Carl Urban. I thought it was fantastic. Yes, wasn't that great? Yes, yeah, so I mean, it, it didn't have, um, have have the budget to do uh, a lot of the stuff that the, the Dredd strip did, but I mean, it really uh, nailed Dredd as, as as a character, and, and mm. it was very very faithful and uh, and um, a, a very um, kind of. Uh, um, prestigious uh, uh, that's not the right word but it, it was just a great adaptation of dread i mean i didn't uh, i didn't dislike um the the, the sylvester Stallone movie at least mm. the first 20 minutes of it which was yes. which, which was very very dread but it, it does go off at a tangent very early on in the film and um it, it doesn't really have the um you know the, the ethos of, of, of dread it's far too um far too humane and friendly but um the, 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 the great thing about the 2000, was it 2012? Is it that long? Yes, already? it was, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Carl Urban, he might not have the, 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 the jaw, but he, he really nailed the character of Dread. So everyone has been saying, all the t- t- talkbacks I've read since uh, the Dread TV series has been announced, we've got to get Carl Urban, Carl Urban's got to be in it. And, uh, yeah, he would be brilliant. I, I, it was I really fantastic. I do, because um, you know, that would be a great starting point. Uh, I, I should just say, by the way, my wife just knocked on the door and she's making kind of uh, exactly. winding up her motions. So I'm going to have to go in about five minutes. That's fine. One last, one last question. Then. Yeah. Let's relate it to that then. Um, the um, so the, with dread being, you know, it didn't get the popularity it deserved. I don't think, but the, there's never really been any. In, has there ever been interest in any of the uh, intellectual properties from 2000 AD for film or TV? Um, well, there the was at the time in, um, in the mid '90s. There was a, a, a kind of a whole separate division um, set up, Egmont Film and TV, which was all about um, based on the you know the modest success of the Dread movie because it did okay. Mm. Um, but um, you know, cr- cr- uh, cr- using other two thousand eight properties, uh, Slain and, and Road Trip were a particular favourites uh, with the, the, you know, the idea of adapting those into movies or TV series, but. I think it was slightly hidebound by the, the, the you know the, the awful contract they sent out to everybody, which uh, essentially um, you know uh, um, suggested that you, you sign away all rights to everything in perpetuity forever, as so, though you know right. it, 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 anything you might have created uh, it automatically became the problem, uh, the, the property of Egmont, and mm. um, you know I. I, I Almost everybody refused to sign the contract. I, I still got my copy of the Armageddon contract, which I didn't sign either. So it was all a bit stillborn. I mean, I think um, the, the problem with Egmont and, and formerly Fleetways, they never really knew what they had with 2008. They, they just didn't know what to do with it. And they seemed to, seemed almost resentful of its success at the, at, at the time. You know, it was uh, often a case of, uh, of getting published against the odds, you know, rather than the company backing you all the way and I think that that certainly changed since the rebellion took it on they really know what they got with um, 2000 AD and they you know they've uh, uh, you know and, and everything I've heard so far about the, the Dread TV, TV series suggests that um, it, it's 
it's going to be good. So um, I, I think I would personally love to see um, a Rogue Trooper movie. I think, I yeah. think the, the, the closest we've seen so far is uh, it's probably made in the nineties, a long time ago now. Is a Kurt Russell movie called Soldier. Yes. And, um, if you watch that and imagine that as a Rogue Trooper movie, I mean, yes, you know that, that's what it should be. That's what it could be. Um, and then talking about, I think Bad Company as well would make an amazing film. I mean, it was inspired in, in part, I think, by Apocalypse Now. You can certainly yeah. see that, read it. But uh, you know, just in, incredibly cinematic. I mean, every every summer there's there's another glut of blockbusters based on on Marvel and DC characters. Some some better than others, but I mean, there's um, there's all these fully formed, um, rich and exciting um, universes of characters out there, and. Uh, it's the same with 2018. All it really needs is um, is a big hit. I mean, as, as, as successful as it was critically, I don't think the Dread movie did all that well financially. No. But all it takes is a really big hit for, for you know studios to start taking notice again. And there yeah. is, there's well, so much out there that, um, that, that could be out. I, I'd love to see a, a, a Slay movie as well, for example. Just just imagine how great that could. Well, be. that's what I always think. You know, everyone when everyone talks about, oh, amazing! How yeah, you know, I can't wait to see the next series of Game of Thrones. I'm thinking, oh yeah. man, you, you should oh, really be reading Slain. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I should. Right, I've got, I'm going to have to go. Yeah. I'm getting loud copying from next door. Uh, but uh, it, it, it's been great to, to talk to her. So we you have too, John. Have another chat sometimes. I really feel like we've only um, scratched the surface. That would be fantastic. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll um, I'll contact you. We'll set some up for the future. Be amazing. Okay. Well, thank, thanks so much, Scott. It's been a real um, pleasure, and uh, I, I'm. Uh... <laughs> There we have it. That's been two great interviews. Uh, the guys from Xenozoic Xenophiles, talking about Xenozoic Tales or Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. Uh, and a great conversation, a massively insightful conversation with former 2000 AD editor and creator of Armoured Gideon, John Tomlinson, who I do think I will be contacting again to see if I can get him back on the show to get some more insights into uh, 2000 AD and Judge Dredd and his other cohorts. Um, I hope this has been insightful. I hope you find it interesting. These are two books I uh, care deeply about. So I hope you go out and uh, have a look at for, or have a look for uh, Xenozoic Tales and uh, Google Armoured Gideon and see if you can track down some of the, the progs, uh, the issues of 2000 AD. Uh, I'm sure you won't be disappointed. Okay, well that's the show wrapping up. Thanks for sticking with us. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get in contact with me, same as usual, 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com. Visit the website, 20thCenturyGeek.com. Find me on Twitter, at 20thCenturyGeek. Uh, and the same, 20thCenturyGeek 20th Century Geek across Facebook, Tumblr, uh, Instagram, the usual. So, hope you enjoyed it. Hope to hear from you again soon. And... Uh, yeah, I'll see you next time.